Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of The Cask and the Curious, a secret handshake podcast on the beverage industry crafted for all who wonder what's on the other side of the drinking glass. I'm your host, Fred Zuba, recording at the chilling and thrilling Emerald Avenue Beer Huta Studio. As we creep closer to Halloween with each passing day, I thought we might continue our eerie autumn theme by exploring beverages of a bygone age. Each of us, no matter how simple or sophisticated our tastes, have a favorite drink. For some, it goes straight from the bottle or tap right into a glass and down the hatch. For others, they prefer to sip slowly and savor the beverage with friends as they move from appetizer to entree to dessert. And then there are those drinks that require the special gifts of a bartender, blending and muddling to get just the right flavor for their picky customer. Thanks to books, archival film footage, anecdotes, and legends, we no longer need to ponder if the tastes of today are similar to those of our beverage ancestors. So let's dim the lights, join hands around the table, careful not to break the circle lest we lose contact with our host, which would be me, of course, as this week we seek an audience with those who have passed ahead of us, that we might better tune into their libation vibrations. This week, we explore the spirits of the dead. Today's episode of The Cask and the Curious is made possible in part by the Beverage Industry Networking Group, otherwise known as Bing. If you are fortunate enough to live in the Pacific Northwest corner of the United States, then odds are good that your favorite fermented beverage is what it is today because of a Bing member. Dedicated, passionate, and connected beverage industry professionals skilled in finance, accounting, insurance, social media, packaging, labeling, sanitation, personnel management, and more. They're ready to help you start, grow, and keep your business happy and healthy and bursting with success. You can find out more at bingoregon.com. That's B-I-N-G-O-R-E-G-O-N.com. We all have our heroes, those noteworthy individuals who inspire us to be better people. Maybe they're champions of civil rights or writers of Nobel Prize-winning literature or painters of places far away or of people that live on the margins of society. Perhaps they sing like an angel or play an instrument that brightens our day or triggers a memory that recalls a favorite place or event. Maybe they are still living, still writing, still fighting the good fight. Or maybe they now reside in history books or in our imaginations waiting for our brain cells to fire them into present awareness. It's these legends of the past that we'll examine today. We'll try to flesh them out a bit, make them just a touch more human by taking a look at what drinks gave them a break from their labors. Sometimes the beverage may have filled them with inspiration. Sometimes it may have been what led to their demise. But no judging today. Nope. Today we get to sit at the bar or table with our idols and share a beverage memory as a way to understand how they, and we, are not so different when it comes to an empty glass and how to fill it. Let's start our quest with writers and artists. There are perhaps no clichés more time-worn and familiar than those of the starving artist and the suffering writer. It almost feels like part of the job description for being creative that you need to imbibe alcohol both frequently and in large quantities. Not true, of course. But that hasn't stopped countless writers and artists, young and old, from drinking to excess as part of their training process. 
So much has been written about the subject that it's low-hanging fruit, and thus a perfect place to start our journey. And what better way to begin than with Papa Hemingway? Ernest Hemingway started calling himself Papa and encouraging others to do so right around 1927 when he was going through his first divorce. Hemingway was alleged to have said, I drink to make other people more interesting. Well, he must have known a lot of uninteresting people, or maybe they were just shadows cast by his arrogant radiance, but he did enjoy his beverages. He was fond of dry martinis and helped to popularize the minty, limey, rum-based mojito, but it was actually the daiquiri that kept him writing The Old Man and the Sea on those hot Havana days and humid nights. He liked them so much that he reportedly drank them in the largest glasses he could find, some the size of a pitcher, bragging that he put away 16 of the generous pours in one sitting. He even invented his own cocktail, which he named Death in the Afternoon, in honor of his non-fiction book on bullfighting. This was a blend of champagne and absinthe, which would have likely knocked anyone on their keister. He enjoyed how the absinthe transitioned from clear to milky when the champagne was added, a process called louching, which you can hear more about in my podcast episode on absinthe. The writer, Ian Fleming, not only created Agent 007, but he created Bond's signature drink, the Vesper Martini, which first appeared in Fleming's 1953 novel, Casino Royale. Named after Casino Royale's heroine, Vesper Lind, the drink consists of three measures of Gordon's gin, one of vodka, and a half measure of Kina Lillet, shaken, not stirred, of course, poured into a champagne goblet glass and served with a twist of lemon peel. Bond also suggests that the cocktail would be better with a grain-based vodka. If Fleming were alive today, he would be disappointed to learn that it is almost impossible to create a Vesper in the way that Bond would approve, since the Lillet Company discontinued the Kina Lillet version in 1986. Lillet is a liqueur made with white wine mixed with fruit liqueurs, and the Kina version had the added flavor of quinine. Most people replace this ingredient with Lillet Blanc, which works well, but lacks the bitter quality of the original. Some industrious mixologists have found a way to replicate the taste of Kina Lillet by infusing their vodka with cinchona bark, which is highly rich in quinine. Fleming himself enjoyed his vespers at Duke's Hotel in London, where he is said to have coined the legendary shaken, not stirred line. Truman Capote, who penned both the sprite Breakfast at Tiffany's and the ominous story In Cold Blood, flirted between one particular cocktail and one brand of scotch. His cocktail of choice was the screwdriver, a blend of vodka, orange juice, and orange slices that he referred to as my orange drink. But Capote's friends remarked that grapefruit juice, 7-Up, and other soft drinks when dosed with large shots of vodka also met with Capote's approval. The flamboyant writer stood just 5 foot 2 inches tall, and dressed in his own flashy and highly unique style, and even in the 1960s, when the slightest hint of homosexuality in the media could ruin the career of a public figure, he made no attempt to hide the fact that he was a gay man. It took him four years to write In Cold Blood, the story about the murder of a Kansas farm family, and Capote found support with his childhood friend and future Pulitzer Prize winner Harper Lee, who was, of course, the author of To Kill a Mockingbird, and who shared his appreciation of scotch, and in particular, 
for the most fashionable brand of the day, J&B Rare. Capote would bring his own bottle to holiday parties and social gatherings, and the public took notice, sending sales of J&B skyrocketing to over a million cases a year in 1963. The American writer, poet, and civil rights activist Maya Angelou had a favorite beverage to inspire her. Although she had a large house, she maintained a room in a nearby hotel where she would escape to do her writing, and in a 2011 interview with O Magazine, Angelou explained how sherry was a part of her writing process. She said she would go to the room about 5.30 in the morning and start working. She never allowed any visitors into the room and preferred to write on yellow pads with ballpoint pens. In her room, she kept a Bible, a thesaurus, a dictionary, and a bottle of sherry, which may have been opened by 6.30 a.m. What kind of sherry? Well, if you listened to last week's episode, you would know that sherry takes many forms. Dry and sweet, light and dark, old and young, certainly enough inspiration for a wide range of poems and tales. Moving on to artists, let's begin with my dear friend Vincent van Gogh. Vincent was legendary in his love for absinthe. Van Gogh suffered from manic depression, periodic epileptic fits, and bouts of psychotic attacks. He drank very heavily while living in Arlay with fellow painter Paul Gauguin, both, no doubt, enjoying more than several glasses of absinthe at a sitting. Many believed, even though they were mistaken, that Van Gogh's madness stemmed from absinthe poisoning, which is a remedial summary of the life of such a convoluted individual. But it's always going to be easier to say that absinthe made him cut his ear off. Pablo Picasso also had an affinity for the green fairy, as absinthe is referred to. Due to a series of circumstances, which you can listen to in my episode on the green fairy, absinthe became prohibited in many countries in the early 20th century, but Spain, Picasso's homeland, was never one of them. Constantly moving between Paris and Barcelona, the painter most surely could procure enough absinthe to keep him inspired. And he was inspired enough to paint a canvas entitled The Absinthe Drinker, which sold at auction in 2010 for over $50 million. Now, that's inspiring. In many treatises, Picasso was labeled as an alcoholic, but his love of alcohol never seemed to impair his art, and he did live to the ripe old age of 91, before laying down his paintbrush for good in 1973, it's claimed that among his last words was the request, Drink to me, drink to my health, you know I can't drink anymore. You probably know those words from a song by ex-Beatle Paul McCartney, who, legend has it, wrote the song after actor Dustin Hoffman called his bluff when McCartney claimed he could write a song about anything. And it seems he could. Thank you, Sir Paul. This brings me to the Mexican painter Frida Kahlo, or, more formally, Magdalena Carmen Frida Kahlo y Calderón. Actually, Picasso's full name is 20 words long, but you're going to have to Google that one yourself. Heralded as an icon of creativity, Kahlo is known for her symbolic subject matter, colorful canvases, and extensive series of self-portraits. According to her niece, Isolde Kahlo, Frida's favorite drink was tequila, born of her love of Mexico, her strength, and her passion for life. Isolde has even formed a company called the Frida Kahlo Corporation that markets Frida Kahlo tequila, made in the mountains outside Guadalajara, Mexico, each bottle featuring the face of Kahlo in a field of flowers with the slogan, 
being original is no sin. But the commercialization of the painter, who died in 1954 at the age of 47, has opened a rift between family, friends, and admirers of the artist who claim that if she knew what was being done in her name, that her ashes would be churning in her urn. They acknowledge that, yes, Frida did enjoy tequila, but she sometimes drank a bottle a day to overcome the physical pain from a horrific bus accident she suffered in 1925 and to dull the emotional pain she endured at the hands of the men in her life like fellow artist Diego Rivera, who she married in 1929, divorced in 1939, and then remarried in 1940. In the world of musicians and singers, there may be no greater teetotaler than Elvis Presley. Now, there is a snippet of a story told by Elvis's father, Vernon Presley, in 1978 that Elvis once got pretty drunk on peach brandy. He got a bottle, and it tasted so good that he drank a little more and a little more until he had drunk too much. But if Elvis ever had a drink in his hand, it was usually a bottle of Pepsi, or Gatorade, which he drank on stage to keep hydrated between songs. Two of the four original members of the Beatles have crossed over to the other side, John Lennon and George Harrison. Being hard-scrabble boys from Liverpool, England, there was certainly a great deal of beer drinking back in the day. But there is one claim that Lennon's favorite drink was a Brandy Alexander. As the name implies, a Brandy Alexander is a brandy-based dessert cocktail consisting of cognac, creme de cacao, and cream that became popular during the early 20th century and is a variation of an earlier gin-based cocktail called simply an Alexander. Ice cream can also be blended in for a frozen Brandy Alexander. Lennon was introduced to the drink on March 12, 1974 by his drinking buddy, singer-songwriter Harry Nielsen. On that fateful night, the pair were tossed out of the Troubadour Rock Club in West Hollywood for heckling the Smothers Brothers. I got drunk and shouted, Lennon reportedly recalled of the incident. He said, It was my first night on Brandy Alexander's. That's brandy and milk, folks. I was with Harry Nilsson, who didn't get as much media coverage as me, the bum. He encouraged me. I usually have someone there who says, Okay, Lennon, shut up. George Harrison was once quoted in a Rolling Stone interview that in his 20s, his favorite things were, in no particular order, small blondes, driving, sleeping, Eartha Kitt, Eggs and Chips, and Alfred Hitchcock movies. And while there are anecdotes of his excessive beer drinking, there's not a lot of documentation. I guess that's what you get for being, quote, the quiet beetle. But in his list of favorite things, Harrison does mention Eartha Kitt. Kitt was an American singer, actress, comedian, dancer, and activist known for her highly distinctive singing style. If you are a fan of Disney animated films, she is the voice actress who plays Yzma in The Emperor's New Groove, and she's known for her song Santa Baby, recorded in 1953. She reportedly drank a honey and warm water mixture backstage before any onstage or on-mic singing, but her beverage of choice was red wine. In her late 70s, Kit was asked about her rules for a healthy life. First, Beyond an occasional aspirin, Kit took little or no other medication. She grew her own food in a garden outside her living room, things like tomatoes, lettuce, string beans, basil, oregano, and she avoided negative people. As for the red wine, when her daughter left home and she was an empty nester, she consumed far more 
but at that point in her life, she claimed she drank in moderation. Not so for Jim Morrison, lead singer of The Doors. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. When one asks, what was Jim Morrison's favorite beverage? The question really should be, what wasn't? Jim died in Paris in July of 1971. According to Difford's Guide to Discerning Drinkers, the month before Morrison died, he was making a pilgrimage to all the haunts where Hemingway and Oscar Wilde spent time. That was probably his first mistake. In L.A., his favorite drinking hole was the Rock and Roll Circus, which is now called Whiskey-A-Go-Go, but he also frequented the Troubadour and Chateau Marmont. By the time Morrison passed away, he was supposedly imbibing two to three bottles of Jack Daniels or Chivas Regal per day, but he wasn't too discerning, and beer was just fine by him, too. I think the ground around his grave in Paris is perpetually pickled with the liquid offerings still left by ardent admirers. When it comes to actors, there's no better place to start this Halloween season than the triple alliance of Bela Lugosi, Boris Karloff, and Lon Chaney Jr. Dracula, Frankenstein's monster, and the werewolf. Bela Lugosi was born Bela Blasco in 1882, and while he played a number of roles, he will be remembered forever for his portrayal of Count Dracula. According to his daughter, Lugosi loved California wines, probably dark, deep, blood-red California Cabernets, but he also enjoyed ice-cold Coors on those hot California evenings. Friends claim his favorite drink was a Boilermaker, an old-school mixture of whiskey and beer, and that when he had had too many, he could get quite carried away and there could be blood on the set. That's terrifying for a number of reasons. When Lugosi passed away in 1956, he was buried in one of his Dracula capes in the grotto at Holy Cross Cemetery in Culver City, California. Life imitating art. Lon Chaney Jr., on the other hand, was a legendary beer drinker, and when he had had too much, he could get violent. No full moon needed to transform Lon into a violent creature. Chaney had run-ins with actor Frank Riker, who he nearly strangled on camera in The Mummy's Ghost, and with director Robert Sidemack, who he clobbered over the head with a vase. Chaney and his drinking buddy, Broderick Crawford, were known as the Monsters around the Universal Pictures backlot because of their drunken behavior that frequently resulted in bloodshed. Perhaps the calmest of the three legends was Boris Karloff, who played Frankenstein's monster. He could be found drinking on the set regularly. Tea, that is. A good old cuppa of black tea. At least one of the three kept his head sewn on straight. <laughs> Get that. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> Martial arts master Bruce Lee was also a tea man. He also drank milk, but never coffee. There are a lot of memes about Bruce Lee's favorite drink, like punch. Others are a bit more off-base, but the story goes that his health regimen kept him from cigarettes or alcohol. Actually, it seems that was only partially true. Lee had a condition known as alcohol flush reaction, common to just over 30% of people of Asian descent. His friends reported that after a few sips of alcohol, he would turn red in the face, start sweating, and feel nauseous. Affected persons lack an enzyme needed to metabolize alcohol. It appears the only type of alcohol Lee could drink without a severe reaction was sake, so one could make the leap that sake was his favorite drink. Sometimes, it isn't just an actor who is known for their drinking antics. 
Sometimes it's the whole dang crew. The 1960s television show Bewitched, starring Elizabeth Montgomery, is one example. There are stories of the Bewitched curse. Elizabeth Montgomery passed away before reaching 65, as did co-stars Alice Pierce, who died from cancer, Paul Lind, who died after suffering a heart attack, and Dick York and Dick Sargent, the two Darrens, who both died of cancer. Now, some may say it's witchcraft or a curse, but it also may have been excessive drinking. It appears that the director and producer of the show were pretty permissive, and the cast of Bewitched were all heavy drinkers and would drink all the time while on set. In fact, some of the cast members were even filmed drunk. If you saw them drinking on the show, chances are they were really drinking. Unless there were days when the child actors were on set. Thank heavens for little Tabitha. She's probably the only reason they could finish their scenes some days. And let's not forget our dear friend, Walt Disney. Uncle Walt was fond of scotch, and in particular, a drink called Scotch Mist, which is essentially scotch over crushed ice with a lemon peel twist. A version of that drink can be ordered at the Carthay Circle restaurant in the Disney California Adventure theme park. The restaurant is a replica of the Carthay Theater in downtown L.A., which has since been torn down, but that's where Snow White and the Seven Dwarves premiered in 1937. While alcohol is for sale in California Adventure, up until the opening of Star Wars Land, the only place where you could buy alcohol in Disneyland proper was a little place called Club 33. Club 33 is an exclusive spot in the back alley of New Orleans Square near the entrance to the Blue Bayou Restaurant. That's the restaurant where you can wave at diners as you float in the swamps on the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. If you've been to Disneyland in Anaheim, you may have passed the unremarkable green door next to a large oval plaque with the numbers 33 in the center. You have to be a member to get in. How much is a membership, you might ask? Members pay $33,000 to join and an annual fee of $15,000. And there's a waiting list. Memberships are mostly owned by corporations who dole out visits to clients and lucky employees. And once inside, you still have to pay for your food and drinks. In addition to businesses, there are reportedly a number of movie stars who are members, and probably still more famous stars of the screen who used to be members but have passed on. Then again, maybe they have taken up residence just west of the club in a large house known as the Haunted Mansion. Before we finish the show, we have some announcements. There's going to be a Q&A episode in December, and we will be taking questions until November 15th. Go to the contact page on our website to submit your questions. You've been listening to another episode of The Cask and the Curious. Our producer is Killian Zuba, who designed and maintains our website, edits our program, and wishes she had a pet raven, although her cat would be less than thrilled. Our co-producer is Conrad Zuba, who is pondering his Halloween costume, and I think he should go as an anime hairstylist called The Last Hairbender. Our catchy theme music is composed and performed by Louis Zong, who, in addition to his musical abilities, has made various animated shorts for the YouTube channel My Brother, My Brother, and Me. Media support and website photos supplied by Carrie Zuba, who has completed phase one of decorating the house for Halloween. Phase two entails me taking down the Christmas lights from two Christmases ago, so we'll see how that goes. 
To see the full list of podcasts, head to thecaskandthecurious.com, where you can also send in any comments, questions, or story ideas. You can also find all of our episodes on most podcast apps. My name is Fred Zuba, and until our next adventure, stay curious. Moving on to artists, let's begin with my dear friend, Vincent... <clears throat> Vincent! <laughs> I have to channel Vincent. Okay, here we go. <clears throat> He's here. <laughs>